the title of the message this morning is The Death of Christmas. Don't worry, it's not, uh, it's not, about, it's not like a culture war kind of sermon. <laughs> We're not talking about how when you walk around, you might not hear Merry Christmas as much as you used to. Uh, that's not it. You'll see, but I want to start this morning with a story. Let me tell you about a story about a man. What most people in the world would identify as a good man. Of course, we know that's not, there's not really such a thing. But a man, people would identify as a good man, a family man. He wasn't a Scrooge. He was kind, generous, and upright in his dealings with others. But he just didn't believe all that incarnation stuff. Not the instant breakfast. That's carnation, which just tastes like chocolate milk. Um, but no, incarnation. And, and if some of you will be familiar with a few words that I used this morning, some of you may learn a few new words today. Incarnation is a churchy word that is about God the Son becoming flesh and dwelling among us. So Jesus. It's about Jesus becoming human and still being divine as well. But he just didn't believe all that incarnation stuff that the churches proclaim at Christmas time. It didn't make sense to him. And he was too honest to pretend otherwise. He just couldn't swallow the story about God coming to earth as a man. And on Christmas Eve, he told his wife, I'm sorry to distress you, but I'm not going with you to church this Christmas Eve. He said he'd feel like a hypocrite, that he'd much rather just stay home and that he wouldn't wait up for them. Shortly after his family drove away in the car, snow began to fall, and he sat by his fireside chair and was reading the newspaper. He was startled by a thudding sound, and then another, and then another. And at first he thought someone must be throwing snowballs at the side of the house outside. And then he went out to investigate and found a flock of birds huddled miserably in the snow. They'd gotten caught up in the storm and in a desperate search for shelter had tried to fly through his living room window. Well, he couldn't just let these creatures sit there and die in the snow, so he thought about the barn where his children stabled their pony, and he put on a coat and some boots and tramped through the uh, deepening snow and opened the doors wide and turned on a light so that the birds would know the way in, but the birds didn't come in. He figured food would entice them, so he went back to the house and got some breadcrumbs and went out and scattered those breadcrumbs in, in a little trail going to the open, lighted, warm barn, and the birds didn't take it. To his dismay, they ignored the breadcrumbs. He tried catching them. He tried sh- waving his arms around and running around and shooing them into the barn, but they would go everywhere except to the lighted warm barn. And then he realized what they were afraid of. To them, he reasoned, I'm a strange and terrifying creature. If only I could think of some way to let them know that they can trust me, that I'm not trying to hurt them, but to help them. But how? And he thought to himself, if only I could be a bird and talk to them mingle with them and speak their language and tell them that they didn't need to be afraid. Then I could show them the way to the safe, warm barn. And, but I would have to become one of them so that they could see and hear and understand. And at that moment, the church bells began to ring and the sound 
went over the snow and the trees and made it to his ears, and he stood there listening to the bells, pealing the glad tidings of Christmas as he fell to his knees and began to pray. Let us pray. God, thank you for the incarnation. Thank you for what Jesus has done for us. What a wonderful story it is. May we understand it even better today than we ever have in our lives. And may it lead us to transform lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Christmas is about the incarnation. A story, a beautiful story about God, the Son, becoming flesh and dwelling among the people whom He created, whom He loves. Now, of course, that story about the man and the birds, it's, it's an analogy. It's not a perfect analogy. There aren't any perfect analogies. I mean, it's not going to get every detail about the incarnation and about why Christ came, right? And, of course, we're, we're talking about a man who had this, opened up this wide barn, you know, and tried to shoo him in when Jesus, we, we've just been learning, t- teaches that the gate is narrow. <laughs> and so it's not going to get everything right, but it does maybe help us a little bit to understand some of the purpose of the incarnation. That Jesus would leave his position with the Father and come down to be with us. People whom, who more often than not reject his love and reject his offer of salvation. And you may have noticed in the story that one of the concerns of the man was that he wanted to try to tell the birds that they didn't have to be afraid. And they, they were afraid. And we should ask ourselves, well, why would those birds be afraid? What, what were they afraid of? Well, I think it's pretty easy, pretty good guess to assume that they were afraid of dying. They were afraid of death, which is a fear that we share as well. Something that we have in common with the animals. As we consider the incarnation, I want us to study what the incarnation was for by turning not to a birth story, but to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. I'm going to read those verses. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God, to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. This is a Christmas passage. It may not, you may not normally think of it as a Christmas passage, but it is. It doesn't have any mangers. Mary and Joseph are nowhere to be found. There's no crying babies. There's no visits from angels. But this passage does even more than the birth story to tell us what the birth story was for. And it says in, that Jesus shared in our flesh and blood. And then in the passage we see the words, so that. Whenever you see so that, those are important words because they identify purpose. 
There's a purpose. Why did this happen? So that. And it says, why did he take the form of man? So that through his death, he might destroy the devil. There's three things that we're focused on this morning. Why the incarnation? The first one is so that Jesus could destroy the devil. Now, we know that he has not yet been destroyed. His time will come. But even now, what Christ has done for us is destroyed the power that Satan had over those who have truly repented of their sins and put their faith in Christ. Like That doesn't mean we can't be influenced any longer, but we're, we moved teams. We went from death to life. We went from being on Satan's team. And if you are a true believer, a true follower of Christ, then you moved to the Lord's army. And now you have the shield of faith to extinguish the fiery arrows that the enemy fires at you. And you have all the other spiritual armor that God gives you. And so Christ has done so much for us even now, even though the devil is not yet technically fully destroyed. But it says that he became man to destroy the devil and to free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Why did Jesus become a baby, a human? So that he could free us from the fear of death. Fear of death is a thing. Now, I think we would all expect... I learned something this week. I didn't know. Obviously, we would expect there to be a technical, scientific word for the fear of death. I just had never heard it before. Thanatophobia. Thanatophobia. There's another new word for you today. That's an extreme fear of death or the dying process. In 2019, a report, a study reported that 11% of people in, in this study said that they were very afraid of death. 31% said they were somewhat afraid. 27% said they were not very afraid of death. 25% said they were not at all afraid. And 7% said, I don't know. <laughs> now that was 2019. I would expect that it would have jumped quite a bit in 2020 and 2021. And you know it did. So the uh, NIH claims that death anxiety was 51% in 2020 and then 62% in 2021. So when we look at here, we see when when you put the very afraid and the somewhat afraid together in 2019, you get 42% in 2019, and then 51% in 2020, and then 62% in 2021. So that's a 20% out of, out of the 100%, a 20% increase in just two years. Now, if you understand statistics a little more, and you're just measuring the percentage of the increase itself, so to go from 42 to 62, that's actually a 48% increase, if you understand what I'm saying there. But what's so weird, what I think is so weird about all of these statistics is that the numbers are so low. It should be 100%, except for those who are true followers of Christ. But people aren't afraid of death if they don't consider death. And so that's why it jumped up so much during the pandemic, because more people were considering the possibility of dying. You know what? I bet the numbers would go through the roof if you asked them all after you throw them off a skyscraper. You afraid of death now? Yeah. Then you're going to get a lot higher numbers. Now, what is it about death that scares us? It might be the pain of death. 
that scares some people, even though st- statistically speaking, most deaths are not painful. It might be the fear of leaving loved ones behind. It might be the fear of you not being with them or the fear of them not having you. It might be fear of the unknown. For those that don't believe in eternal life, it could be fear of non-existence, which is really fear of the unknown as well. Or maybe it's fear of God's wrath. There are many different angles that you could approach when it comes to fear of death, but Hebrews teaches us that fear of death is something that the whole world is enslaved to, and Christ's incarnation was to solve that problem. How so? How does it solve that problem? Well, it says, verse 17 says that he had to be like us in every way. Why? We see those words again, so that. So that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest. Now, by definition, a priest needs to assume the, well, they're, they're part of the group that they represent, Okay, that's why Hebrews 5.1 says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And so for Jesus to become a merciful and faithful high priest for us in things pertaining to God, he needed to assume the form of those who he would be representing, which is man. So he came to be like us. Now, the beautiful thing about Christ is that he, I mean, he's more than just a man. So he, he didn't just take on the role of priest. He also could take on the role of the sacrifice itself, which is why verse 17 goes on to say, see, so that is a purpose, but then there's a purpose behind the purpose. It was so that he could become a high priest to, that's the purpose behind the purpose, to make atonement for the sins of the people. There's the key. To make atonement for our sins. That is why this all happened. Atonement is another word. Maybe you're familiar with it, maybe you're not. It's a churchy word. But in the... uh, Well, atonement used to be a more common word that meant reconciliation. Now, in the Old Testament, it came to mean to cover or to take away, though it normally meant to cover. And those two things can still have a very similar meaning. Even today, because like if we're at the restaurant and I'm going to cover your bill, it doesn't mean I'm going to go like cover it up and hide it somewhere. It means I'm going to pay it. I'm going to take care of it. Now, on the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, the sins of the whole nation were dealt with by a sacrifice. First Corinthians says that Jesus died for our sins. Galatians said that he gave himself for our sins. Yes, Jesus was born in a manger. His incarnation, the story that we're, we're all familiar with at Christmas. He, yeah, he was born in a manger to a virgin mother. To, you know, there was magi, there were shepherds, there was angels. All of that happened, and all of it's important. But it all happened so that he could atone for our sins. And it's very, very important to me that we all understand what atonement means and what Jesus did. And on a day like Christmas, when we've got a lot of different people, some people that may not normally be here. We've got kids in the service. I wanted to make sure that we could understand atonement, so I wanted to read a book about atonement. And uh, it's a book by R.C. Sproul, actually marketed as a children's book. But as you guys know, uh, the rare occasions that I do 
read a children's book in the service, you found out that there's a, a lot there for all of us. And I think you're going to find that with this story today. It's called The Priest with Dirty Clothes. The story begins, well, the author begins with a passage out of the book of Zechariah. So that's a book out of the Old Testament. It's the vision of the high priest. Zechariah chapter 3, 1 through 5 says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the Lord, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. So we begin the story. Darby and Campbell McFarlane lived near a beautiful lake in Scotland called Loch Lamond. Seven-year-old Darby was always finding ways to get herself and her little brother Campbell in trouble. One day after it had rained, they went outside to play. Let's make mud pies, Darby said. The children pretended they were bakers. They found some mud, rolled it, patted it, and fashioned it into pretend cakes and pies. As they played, they wiped their hands on their clothes, spreading mud all over themselves. They laughed and giggled as they got muddier and muddier. When their mother saw them, she did not laugh. Just look at you. You look like mud pies yourselves, she cried. Hurry and take off those filthy clothes, and I'll give you both a bath. After the children were clean, their mother looked at the muddy clothes. I'll never be able to get these dirty clothes clean, she said to herself. Just then, there was a knock at the front door. It was the the children's grandfather. As Darby and Campbell rushed in to hug him, Grandpa grinned and said, It looks like someone made a mud pie bakery in the front yard. The children giggled. It seems our little bakers have ruined their clothes, Mom said. Oh, that's too bad, Grandpa said. But it reminds me of a strange and wonderful story. Oh, tell us, please, Darby begged, pulling Grandpa toward the sofa. As soon as they were all seated, Grandpa began the story. Many years ago, in a faraway land, the people of a small village crowded into a large church. It was nighttime. The church was dark except for the candles that were lit inside, casting shadows on the high walls. A young man named Jonathan was lying on the floor with his arms stretched out so that his body was in the shape of a cross. A great bishop prayed for him. This was the most important night of Jonathan's life. He was about to become a priest. At the end of the ceremony, the bishop gave Jonathan the special clothes of a priest. First, the bishop gave Jonathan a blue robe with a white hood and helped him put it on over his long brown robe made of scratchy wool. Then the bishop tied a white cord around Jonathan's waist. Now Jonathan was a priest. The very next week, Jonathan was invited to the castle of the king. He was to preach his first sermon to the royal household. Jonathan worked hard to prepare his sermon. He wanted it to be his very best. When it was time for Jonathan to go to the castle, it was raining very hard. 
Jonathan didn't want his new special clothes to get wet, but there was nothing he could do. He pulled the hood of his robe over his head and set out for the castle. As Jonathan and his horse made their way to the castle, the muddy road became more and more slippery. Suddenly, the horse slipped and stumbled, and Jonathan fell off. Jonathan was not hurt, but he was muddy from head to toe. There was mud on his face and on his shoes. There was mud all over his blue robe. The white cord was no longer white. Jonathan was very upset. Jonathan tried hard to clean himself off, but there was no way he could clean his clothes and get to the castle on time. He thought about running away. He didn't want to preach in front of the king in such dirty clothes. Uh, The king just has to understand, he thought. So Jonathan kept going until he reached the castle. When he arrived, Jonathan hurried into the castle. He looked for a place to clean himself, but the tower bells began to ring. It was time for the royal household to gather to hear Jonathan's sermon. Slowly, Jonathan walked to the place where he was to stand and opened his Bible. As soon as the people saw Jonathan's dirty clothes, they began whispering. The king also was surprised to see the priest's mud-covered clothes, but the king was a kind and gentle ruler, and he could see that Jonathan was ashamed of his appearance. He knew that Jonathan must have a good reason for coming to the palace in such dirty clothes. At that very moment, the court magician, whose name was Malice, stood up and shouted, Wait! This priest cannot preach before the king wearing those dirty clothes. Malice was a very mean man. He hated all priests. He even hated priests whose clothes were clean. Because he was powerful and mean, the people were afraid of him. As soon as Malice shouted out against Jonathan, other people began to yell mean things about Jonathan too. The king felt sorry for Jonathan. He didn't like the way Malice was behaving. He was afraid that Malice might cause someone to harm the priest. The king stood and said to the people, Be calm, please. Stop talking. I will take care of this problem. The people grew silent. Even Malice stopped talking. The king then asked Jonathan to come forward. When Jonathan walked up to him, the king said, Why did you come here in these dirty clothes? Jonathan explained what had happened. The king nodded and said, I understand. I'm sorry that you had this accident, but you cannot preach here today wearing such dirty clothes. But I will give you another chance. You may come back next week and preach, but only if you wear clean clothes. Thank you, your majesty, Jonathan said. I'm sorry I'm so dirty. I promise next week I will be clean. Jonathan left the castle as fast as he could. When he got home, the first thing he did was try to clean his clothes, but the stains were so deep he couldn't get them out. The more he tried to clean his clothes, the worse they looked. They were so dirty they looked like his old scratchy brown robe. The next day, Jonathan took his special clothes to the town fuller. The fuller was a man who cleaned people's dirty clothes. He had special soaps that could get mud out of clothing. The fuller looked at Jonathan's clothes and said, Oh, these clothes are so dirty, I don't know if I can make them But I will do my best. Come back tomorrow. When Jonathan returned to the fuller's shop, the fuller said, I'm afraid that I cannot make your clothes clean. They are ruined forever. The only thing you can do is to get new clothes. But I can't get new clothes, Jonathan said. These clothes were given to me by the bishop. He only gives out one set of clothes. I'm sorry about that, the fuller said, but there's nothing more I can do. You should go see the bishop. Maybe he can give you a new set of clothes so you can preach before the king. Jonathan didn't think the bishop would give him a new set of clothes, but he had to ask, so he went straight to the bishop's office. The bishop patiently listened to Jonathan's story, and then he said, This is a sad thing that has happened to you, Jonathan. 
but there's nothing I can do to help you. Jonathan was very sad. Isn't there something I can do to get clean clothes, he asked. Please let me do something special to earn new clothes. The bishop's face was sad. No, Jonathan, he said, the rules are clear. There's nothing you can do on your own to earn a new set of clothes. The only person who can help you is the great prince. Perhaps you should speak to him. The bishop gave Jonathan the directions to the palace of the great prince. Jonathan carefully followed the directions until he came to the palace where the great prince lived. He asked a guard for permission to see the prince, and the guard escorted Jonathan to the great hall where the prince was sitting on a throne. When Jonathan saw the prince, he was amazed. The prince was dressed in a long purple robe with special precious jewels on it. There was a band around his waist made of pure gold. His face seemed to shine like the sun. Jonathan had never seen anyone like him. The prince looked at Jonathan with caring eyes. Why are you here? He asked in a voice that was soft and kind. What do you need from me? Jonathan said, O great prince, I am a new priest. I am to preach a sermon to the king's household, but I have ruined my clothes, and I cannot stand in front of the king without clean clothes. No one has been able to make my clothes clean. Is there anything you can do to help me? Jonathan told the prince how his clothes became dirty. The prince listened quietly, then said to Jonathan, I understand your problem, and I can help you. Are you going to give me clean clothes? Jonathan asked. Well, you will soon see, Jonathan, the prince replied. But first, come with me to the fireplace. Jonathan followed the prince to the corner of the room where a small fire was burning in the fireplace. The prince pointed to a small branch at the edge of the fire. The branch had been partly burned, but it was no longer hot. The prince told Jonathan to pick up that branch. Jonathan reached down and picked up the branch. He held it and looked at it. It was black and charred. When the prince said Jonathan could put it down again, Jonathan put it back beside the fire. But the prince said, now look at your hand. Jonathan looked down and saw that his hand was black. It was covered with soot from the branch. Jonathan, the priest said, you are like the branch you pulled from the fire. You're covered with dirt. But the dirt is not just on your clothes, it's on your heart. Sin, the wrong things that you do, makes your heart dirty. No soap can make it clean. Then the prince said, Jonathan, I can help you. Go to the castle next week and be ready to preach your sermon. Wear your dirty clothes. I will take care of them. Jonathan felt sad and afraid. The great prince, he said, the king said I could not stand in front of him in my dirty clothes. And the evil magician Malice will do something mean to me if I enter the castle with dirty clothes. A warm smile spread across the face of the great prince. Ah, yes, Jonathan, I know all about Malice and his meanness, he said. I also know the king very well. You see, Jonathan, the king is my father. Jonathan asked, well, how are you going to make my clothes clean? The prince answered, I promise you that I will take care of that. I never break my promises. I will always do what I say I will do. Now go home, get ready for your sermon. I will be there and I will do what I promised. When the next week came, Jonathan was both excited and a little afraid. He thought about not going to the castle at all. Then he remembered the promise the prince had made to him. I will trust in the promise of the prince. I will go to the castle, he said to himself. Jonathan went outside and got on his horse. This time the day was bright with sunshine. There was no storm clouds in the sky. Jonathan had no trouble making the journey to the castle. When he got there, he could see a crowd of people going in. Jonathan swallowed hard and walked inside to the palace where he was to stand and preach. 
But just as soon as Jonathan took his position, Malice stood up and shouted, May bad things happen to you, O priest. You're still wearing dirty clothes. The king looked at Jonathan and frowned. Why are you here again with dirty clothes? The king asked. I told you that you could not stand in front of me looking like that. Jonathan felt ashamed. His face turned red. He couldn't even answer the king. The people began to whisper. Someone shouted loudly, Go away! At that moment, someone came into the room. It was a man dressed in a scratchy brown robe, exactly like the robe Jonathan wore under his special clothes. The man was carrying a present under his arm. At first, no one recognized the stranger. Then someone shouted, It's the great prince! Malice didn't know what to think. He asked, What's the meaning of this? Why are you here? And Why are you wearing that itchy robe? The prince didn't answer. He was smiling as he walked to the front of the room and stood next to Jonathan. Then the prince handed Jonathan the present and told him to open it. Everyone watched Jonathan as he carefully opened the gift the prince had given to him. Jonathan's eyes grew wide when he saw what it was. It was the perfect present. Inside were the beautiful clothes that belonged to the prince. The prince smiled again at Jonathan and said, These are the clean clothes I promised you. They are yours forever. They will never wear out. There's not a spot of dirt on them, and nothing can make them dirty. They are perfect for you. Then the prince said to Jonathan, Take off your dirty clothes and give them to me. Jonathan took off his dirty clothes and gave them to the prince, and the prince put them on himself. Next, the prince said, Put on my clothes and preach your sermon. Jonathan's hands shook as he put on the prince's beautiful clothes. When Jonathan was dressed, the prince said to the king, Father, May Jonathan now stand in your presence. He is one of my people. The king was pleased. He said to the prince, Yes, my son, as long as he wears your clothes, he may stand in front of me. Jonathan was filled with joy. How can I ever thank you for being so kind to me? He asked the prince. And the prince said, If you are really thankful, and if you want to show that you love me, then keep all the commandments that I give to you. Oh, I I will, Jonathan said. I want to be good enough to wear your clothes. But you cannot be good enough, Jonathan. You must live your whole life trusting in my goodness while you wear my clothes. On that day, Jonathan preached his best sermon ever, and he spent the rest of his life preaching about the great prince. He wore the prince's perfect present until the day he died. Grandpa turned to Darby and Campbell and said, That's the end of my story. Did you like it? Oh, yes, the children replied. Do you think that if we could find the great prince that he would give us clean clothes too? Yes, Grandpa answered. He gives clean clothes to everyone who believes in him. They're not clothes like the ones you ruined today. The great prince gives new clothes for our hearts. The dirt that we get on our clothes can sometimes be washed away, but we have a bigger problem. When we sin and do wrong, our hearts become so dirty that we cannot stand in front of God. For us to be able to be friends with God, we, need, we have to have the dirt on our hearts cleaned away. This is what Jesus does for us. He forgives us by taking the dirt from our hearts and putting it on himself, just like the great prince took Jonathan's dirty clothes and wore them. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see the dirt on our hearts. Instead, he sees a heart covered by his son's clean clothes. If you trust in Jesus and believe his word, your heart will be clean. Jesus will forgive you when you sin, but you have to ask him to forgive you. Then he cleans your heart and you can stand in front of God forever. 
I'm sorry we got mud on our clothes, but I'm sure glad we heard the story about the great prince, Darby said. And with a hug, her mother said, yes, it is a story we all need to hear and remember. The end. That is the story of the Incarnation. That's the purpose. Is that a Christmas story? Well, not in the traditional sense. But it teaches us what Christmas is about. What the reason for it was for. And John, you can go ahead and put the PowerPoint back up. We studied, before we got into the book of Matthew, we were in Revelation, we were studying those seven churches, and you may remember, you know, in those passages talking about how, how those who remained in Christ would receive his white garments, and, and that's Christmas, you know, it's, it's not the whiteness of the snow, it's the whiteness of your heart being cleansed because of what Christ has done for you, what he did for you on the cross. That's what Christmas is about. It's about a baby, sure, but that baby became a man. A man who would and could atone for our sins. Joseph Schumann said, The incarnation displays the greatness of God. Our God is the eternal God who was born in a stable, not a distant, withdrawn God. Our God is a humble, giving God, not a selfish, grabbing God. Our God is a purposeful, planning God, not a random, reactionary God. Our God is a God who is far above us and whose ways are not our ways, not a God we can put in a box and control. And our God is a God who redeems us by His blood, not a God who leaves us in our sin. Our God is great indeed. And that is who our God is. You know, the website where I found the definition for thanatophobia, which you remember was the fear of death, it also said something interesting. That website said, psychotherapy can help most people overcome this disorder. Well, uh, let's deal with a couple things there. First of all, fear of death is not a disorder. Now, I know we live in a time when things that are disorders are being called normal and things that are normal get called disorders. But unless you have repented of your sins, put your faith in Christ, and been born again, fear of death is the most helpful fear that you could possibly have. And let's deal with the second thing. Psychotherapy is not going to help you one bit with what actually happens after death. It can help you in the here and now stop thinking about it, stop considering death, and so you might stop walking around in fear. But it is a bad thing for you to not fear death if you don't have Christ. The reality is that without Christ, you will stand before God with a dirty heart, with dirty clothes, and you will be sent away. And being sent away is not something that we should wish on anyone in this world. It is a punishment that will last for eternity. And you can't clean yourself. You can't clean your clothes. It doesn't matter how hard you work, how hard you try. You will never atone for your own sins. You have nothing to offer God. None of us do. We're, we're as good as dead. Just like those birds in the story. Except that God became flesh and dwelt among us so that we could see and hear and listen and understand. 
And if you don't know Christ, will you see him? Will you listen to this story, to these scriptures? Will you understand what he's done for you? Will you accept his offer? The clean clothes that he offers, the the ability to cleanse your heart of your sins? I hope that you will. Because if you haven't, you've never experienced Christmas. You don't know what Christmas is about. It's just a commercial consumer holiday. But if you'll come to know Christ and accept his clothes, then you can really, you can really have Christmas tomorrow. And for those of us who do know Christ, what a wonderful thing that we get to rest knowing that those clothes that he gives us, they can't become dirty. And he's not going to take them away. That's what we see in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10.14, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever, forever, those who are being made holy. In 1 Peter 1, 3-5, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Are there enough powerful words there to help you understand that in Christ you can be cleaned, you can be saved, you can be sealed? What a wonderful thing. Christmas is not just about the birth. It's about the death because the birth was for the death. Of course, the death was for the resurrection. But we're not going to go on to the resurrection this morning. You see, we celebrate the birth of Christmas because we celebrate the death of Christmas. And I hope that you can celebrate Christmas truly tomorrow in Christ with a new heart and clean clothes.